Good morning. We're going to do Exodus 20 this morning, so if you would stand with your Bibles opened, I'm going to read the first uh, 12 verses from the chapter. I want to do a, a responsive reading around the law of the Lord, the, the Word of God. So Exodus 20, God's covenant law, second part of a four-part series on covenant love. And God spoke, Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. So responsive reading is from Psalm 19. Many of you probably are familiar with this. I'm going to read the first and odd verses. If you would join together from the screen and read the second and even verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Here we go. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Hold on. We went backwards. There you go. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let's pray. So, Lord, we're thankful for the word of God. In creation, you shout your glory. In the word, you've given to us this perfect revelation of who you are, that we might know you and walk with you. And we might love you and worship you and serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that as we get into the word, the things I've prepared, you'd break them fresh this morning for us to take. We're hungry. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to understand even better how it is that we can really enter in to your gates with thanksgiving, enter into your courts with praise, to give you all the glory that is due your name and you alone. So, Father, I pray and ask in Jesus' name now for your anointing, your blessing to our hearts and minds. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that we might grow this morning. And we are praying also for anyone who is listening, watching, whatever, who doesn't know you, that through the Word of God, you would reveal to them today how much you love them, what you did for them, and that you'd bless them through the gospel with salvation, even this morning. We ask these things as believers in Jesus' name. And everyone said Amen. You can be seated. So the book of Exodus, I'm not going to revisit too much from last week. I'll encourage you to get that study because it's foundational to the things that we're learning about this thing called the law, the covenant. So in there, we read that, that the people knew God, last week, the people knew God through the Abrahamic covenant, which is unilateral, meaning it's one way. God now is instituting, initiating this thing called the law of the covenant. And in this, it is a conditional covenant. And so in Exodus, we read, therefore, if you will indeed, Exodus 19.5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So that's what God told them. Here's the deal. The covenant is referred to as the law, the law of Moses. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus chapter 34 and, and also in Deuteronomy 4, this covenant is simply the Ten Commandments that Moses received from the Lord. He received these with great fear and trembling. It, wasn't a, it, wasn't a, it was a pretty scary sight for all the people. Moses included, Hebrews says, so terrifying was the sight, the presence of God, Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And that is so right. We should be. The covenant desire of God for his people to speak to them, to meet with them, that they might know him. That's always been God's desire. That hasn't changed because God doesn't change. Amen? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants to speak to us. He wants to meet with us. He wants us to know him. The children of Israel's desire for God's covenant was also genuine. We read that they sincerely desired all that the Lord has said as they hear this, out of their mouths come, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And God acknowledged the fact that it was genuine. All that they said was right. So this, this relationship is changing now. God is entering. In fact, last week I said, God's saying to them through this law of covenant, I have more for you. I have more for you. And he does for us also. So desire is one thing. Obedience, another. Would you say amen to that? The desire, Paul wrestled with this in Romans 7. What, what I want to do, I'm not doing. What I hate that I'm doing. What's my problem? What's my problem? What's my problem? Well, God knows the problem is sin, knows the problem is our sinful nature. And so this desire that he sees is genuine. We want to know God. We want to walk with God. We want to hear from God. But there's an issue coming up. And this obedient question often gets legalized in the sense that if you don't do these things, then God's not going to speak to you. If you don't do these things, then God's not going to meet with you. If you don't do these things, then God doesn't want you to know him. That is so opposite what we're learning about who he is and why he gave this covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. So God has no illusions about the children of Israel keeping the covenant. So why 
this if-then covenant. Why did God desire, desire this to give this to them, though it seems it's destined for failure? And why did God initiate it in the first place? What's the deal? That's what we want to look at because it is central to much of the Old Testament leading up to the fulfillment of the law through Jesus Christ. It's fantastic, this whole plan of God. So the answer to these questions, why, and what, why the if then, and it's destined for failure, here's the beautiful thing we're going to be learning. That the answer to these questions is this. In the covenant... God gave to them the blood sacrifice. The covenant blood. And so we read in Exodus 24, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. What words? The covenant that he's given to Moses. All those things that he gave to him. It was through the law that the blood of the covenant was given, understood, and applied. And listen. When it was applied, then it was understood why it was given. It's the same for us. We begin to apply the blood. We understand it. We apply it. And then as we apply it, we begin to understand why God gave it. That's the beauty and the reason for the covenant. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law... He took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarletwood, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission of what? Sin. And so we have this thing called the law. It's holy, it's just, it's good. The law of God reveals man's sinfulness. The law of Moses reveals the forgiveness of that sin through blood sacrifice. And then we come to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. Beautiful. Incredible. Would never have surfaced in our minds to even think about these things, but God had it all planned. And he gives this law now. So there are three laws. There's the law of God, which is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and that was written in stone. There is the law of Moses, which are the civil and ceremonial laws that were written in books. But then there's the law of the Spirit, the law of life in Christ. Where is that written? In our hearts. You talk about a plan through Jesus Christ for us to know God and walk with him and enjoy his presence in our lives nonstop. So this, this thing called the law, the law is holy and just and good. Reveals holiness and justice and goodness of God. Now, these law, these things should be looked at as a whole. When you get a speeding ticket, what does it say? I know you don't get speeding tickets, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> when you get a speeding ticket, what happened? You just broke the... So James says, if you break one, you've broken the whole thing. The law has been broken. So these tablets of the covenant, ten times we read of them, the tablets of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant, the tables, five times we have the Lord your God in the first five commandments, one for each. 
The Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord your God is a jealous God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Honor your father and mother, which is that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. So the first five commandments have to do with our relationship with God. So in those, all those five, he gives a reason why. God's reasonable, would you say? He said, this is why. You get to the second table, the sixth through tenth command, and that has to do with our relationship with each other. And there are no reasons. It just says, don't do it. Don't do it. Why? Because in knowing God, we understand why we don't do it. So the first one is the sanctifying presence of the, of the Lord our God in our lives. That's the first one. God sanctifies our life in relationship with him. When you get to the second table, it's the sanctity of people. That everyone creating the image of God is just as loved by God as the next. So God has this relationship with us, the sanctity, sanctifying presence of, the, of God. Then this, we have this, God's sanctifying presence in our lives will result in our lives being God's sanctifying presence in the lives of others. How does that work? Very simple. I love you because God loves me. And love is the fulfilling of the law. So as I'm in relationship with God, I know his love for me. Then the second table, I'm not going to do those things because God loves me. And I then in turn, I'm going to love you as God has commanded. The law is holy and just and good. And God gave it to us for this reason. So the sanct God's sanctifying presence to our lives will result in our lives being God's sanctifying presence in the lives of others. How? By loving obedience as God loves us. So Romans chapter 1, 13. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. That's the debt. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not, here it is, second table, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As you all, by the way, as you already love yourself. That's not an issue. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Galatians chapter 5, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's plan. That's how he set it up. He's, his presence in our lives, sanctifying our lives in relationship to him, then is echoed out in our relationship with one another. And we become that by loving. So the law of God sanctifies every person. That's creating his image. But those who come to know him now, we have this if then. If God so loves me, then I'm going to love you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to live my life as one who loves God and therefore wants to love you through my life. So you shall have, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. It means, it means before or besides him. It doesn't say except him because there are many other gods. These gods line themselves up 
inviting for our attention, our worship, our allegiance instead of God. And I'm thinking, why would I do that? If God has so delivered me, in fact, he said to the children of Israel, I didn't deliver you because you're some great people. I didn't deliver you because you're some fantastic group that I just couldn't wait to deliver. They said, you were the least, and you didn't deserve to be delivered. The reason I delivered you is because I loved you. That's the reason. I delivered you because I loved you. And so when he says, you shall have no other gods before, I'm thinking, why would I? Why would I do that? There are so many other gods. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise it. You cannot serve God and whatever. Mammon, you can't do it. And yet I try all the time. The allegiance of my heart. He says, the reason for this is I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. In other words, God had a claim on their lives. God claimed them for himself. He said, I delivered you. I saved you. I'm your redeemer. I brought you out of the house of bond. I claim you as my own. And I'm thinking, claim on. Claim on. That I'm, I'm God's. That he chose me because he loved me. And he gave me this relationship with him because he is God who redeemed and loves me. And so in Corinthians we read, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. We are claimed by the living God who loves us. That's the deal. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of man. 1 Corinthians 7.23. So, this love of God, this claim of God on my life sets me free, body, soul, and spirit. Sets me free from men telling me this, that, and the other thing. And now I'm free in Christ because I am his and he is mine. What a great truth. Second Peter, there were many, also many false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who what? Bought them. These false teachers come in, and all of a sudden, it depends on something else. All of a sudden, it's this, that, or the other thing. All of a sudden, God is not who God has claimed to be and revealed himself to be in the Bible. It's some other God who is nothing like any, like the God that, we, that loves us and saved us. Revelation, they sang a new song. Chapter 5, you are worthy to take the scroll. And to loose its seals, for you were slain and redeemed us to God by your blood out of your tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we are kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I mean, this is what God did. He, chose, he loves us. He redeemed us. He has a claim on our lives. Would you say, thank you. I say, yeah. Listen, a lot of times when the law is talked about, it's this legalistic kind of thing. I'm saying to you, God's saying that because you put another God in front of you and you're going to have problems with the law. You put God in front of you and you understand the law is telling us, the law is giving to us the blood sacrifice. It's telling us this is who God is. It's holy, it's just, it's good, and we can know him, but the only reason we know him is because he claimed us. <laughs> I love it. So God is love and God loves me. God is the redeemer, and God redeemed me. God is the savior, and God saved me. What a place to start. You shall have no other gods before me, because when you do, it's going to mess up 
the relationship you have with God. And we don't want to do that. The second commandment, you shall not make yourself any carved image. He says, any likeness of anything on heaven, on earth. Now, this is not a prohibition against carved work and artwork. In fact, the, the uh, mercy seat had carved cherubim on it. In the tabernacle itself, there were embroidered cherubim in it. So it's not, that's not the prohibition. The prohibition is not bow down to them. Not begin to look at those images or whatever and begin to sort of bow. Like, wow, this, is, this just reminds me of God. Jesus said, God is spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. When objects are needed to remind us of the presence of God, we've lost something of the reality of the presence of God. In spirit and in truth. So God's saying, don't do it. The reason the Lord, I'm a jealous God. Not suspicious, not distrustful. He's just saying, there's a consistency. I want you to know about who I am. My character, my nature. Don't diminish it with handmade things and begin to need those to remind you of my presence. It's not saying also that children are going to be punished for their fathers and sins. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. But, listen carefully, and I know you know this, but we need to hear it. Our sins will impact our children. It's that simple. Our sins will impact our children. Are they unavoidable? They're not unavoidable. But our children need to see us applying again repentance and faith toward God. And saying it and communicating that. Children may pay the sins for their parents. I think of these drug babies physically. It's horrible. But the same with sin. A child is keenly aware of who you bow down to, who I bow down to. What are my priorities? What am I giving my life for? Do they know that you're giving your life for God and God alone in everything that you do? See, that's what we want to pass down to our children. The effects of sin can last a long time. The damage done but the mercy of God lasts forever. Lasts forever. So he says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon their children, the children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, there's been no repentance. There's been no change. But, <laughs> it's just, it's so incredible. But showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments, who get it. And so, you shall not make for yourselves any. God is merciful, and God's been merciful to me. He's merciful, he's been merciful to me. Commandment number two. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To take in vain means to misuse it. 
To use it for no purpose. It means to use it irreverently or contemptuously. To empty it. To attach to it emptiness. Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. It's amazing. When I got saved, how much of my vocab- half my vocabulary went out the window. That's a part of what we're talking about. But for me, the basic thing is be the real deal with God. Just be the real deal with God. In other words, do not, pray, do not let your praise of God be emptied out. Praise God sincerely. Don't let your prayers be emptied out. Pray sincerely to God. Don't let your promises and your oaths and your vows be emptied out by not keeping them. Stay true to God. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Be the real deal with God. That's what Jesus said. Peter picked it up. Let your yes be yes and your no. See, don't take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Don't let it be just something empty. Has no substance in my heart. But rather, it comes from my heart when I praise God. When I pray to God. When I say I'm going to do something, make commitments. Those commitments might be a one-time deal. It might be a lifetime commitment. But to take the Lord's name in vain is to violate those commitments and say I'm done. Jesus said... By your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. We read in Psalm 19, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. For then I shall be blameless, and, then sh- and shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Third commandment, God is God, and God is God to me. Don't take his name in vain. God is God. Don't let that be emptied any bit. And God is God to me. He's my God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember that? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it shall, you shall do no work. And then he lists his name. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, your stranger who is in, within your gates. Everyone has a day off. It still happens in, Jerusalem, in Israel today. I was thinking on this and thinking we used to have the blue laws. How many remember the blue laws? On Sunday, everything closed down. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is God's gift to us. In the creative order, it's a 6-1 rhythm. Six days work, one day rest. Six days work, one day rest. How many of you guys do that? Don't raise your hand. Who does I say don't raise your hand? Because I don't want to raise mine because I would be lying. But God, and, and, but it's the Sabbath made for men. Not, it's not a legalistic thing. Some have this keeping the Sabbath. But listen, this is very interesting. In the New Testament, As it summarizes the law, the Sabbath is never mentioned. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel is never mentioned. Romans 14 puts it this way. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him to stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. So in other words, 
I, I, I'm not negating the fact that I believe of Sabbath is important. The 6-1 rhythm is given away. It's in the created order. That's how God created us. And we need that as our cattle do. And all of, well, we don't have any cattle, but maybe you do have cattle. <laughs> but God said, he, he gifts that to us. He says, hey, take a day off. You need it. Your body needs it. Your mind needs it. Your soul needs that. But he says, what, you know, we could say, well, what, what's the Sabbath? Well, it's and Seventh-day Adventists have a certain 24-hour period that that's it. Any others, you're, you can't know the Lord. I'm getting sidetracked. Okay. Colossians, let no one judge you regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So Jesus is, is our understanding of God's love and why the Sabbath, all, they come in relationship to God, which is only possible through Jesus Christ. So we're not hugging the Sabbath. It's a shadow. We're hugging Christ. God's sanctifying presence in our lives result in our lives being God's sanctifying presence in the lives of others by loving them as God loves us. So this first table, one through five, the fifth one is honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the, in, upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. This is the sanctity of parental authority. God sanctifies that. Honor means to give place, the place of superiority, hold in high esteem, praise highly. It means to show respect and reverence and to care for them. And Jesus said, don't blame God for not honoring your father and your mother. You say, well, it's a gift to God. No, you can't do that. It's God's fault. No, we are to honor our father and mother. God has sanctified the parent-child relationship. Now, here's the deal. You didn't get to choose your parents. Well, your parents didn't get to choose you either. It goes both ways. And whatever the case might be, God gave to parents an authority in their child's life. Now, the family is authority central in God's design. It's the family. It does not say children honor your father and mother. It says honor your father and mother. It says children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Paul quotes that in Ephesians. But to dishonor them, mother and father, is to dishonor God with your life. Jesus himself honored his parents growing up. So as I see these Ten Commandments, I see this one as the transitional commandment. Transitioning from the first table and then into the second, which is of the law. Here's why. I believe it's taking the authority of God himself and placing it in the, as the, his authority in parents. And that, transla- that, that transmitting of authority is in the family structure. It's from God to the parents. And now the parents are, in a sense, God to their children. The authority of God given to me as a father, given to you as a mother, is God's authority transitioned from who he is in our relationship with him now into my relationships with other people through the parent-child authority. So from God to parent to child throughout life, that child becomes a parent with children and throughout that life and on and on goes God's order 
for how we are to live our lives in this thing called family. Now, our nation began setting aside God's authority. That's what happened. And in my lifetime, I was a part of this. Parents began rejecting God's authority. It set in motion the questioning of their authority. That's what happened. And so, should my children be on equal grounds with me? And that was you, many of you, if, you were, if you were older, you, you remember that whole thing. There's a question of, no, the parents should be equal to the kids. The kids should be able to do this and this and that and the other thing. And the result of that is, the children then began questioning parental authority. And when that starts happening, it led to the challenging of all authority because God's central authority is in the marriage, in the, in the family unit. Are we not seeing the results and the fruit of that like we've never seen it before? When you have children in a kindergarten class throwing a desk at a, at a teacher and the teacher can't do anything about that? He said that your days may be long upon the land. <laughs> in Ephesians. It says, children, obey your parents, Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. In other words, if you don't obey me, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, you want to live a little longer? You better, get, oh, you better get under the authority here. I hope I, I, I apologize for that. that was just... There is no example in the whole of the Bible of that actually happening. But God's saying, this is serious. That rebellious heart needs to be brought under the authority of a father and mother. And that's going to translate to a community, to a church, to a state, to a nation, to a world. It begins with that authority as, as transition to the parents. The sanctity of parental authority is essential in the hearts of your children, in the hearts of your grandchildren. In Ezekiel, the nation Israel experienced this very thing firsthand. In Ezekiel chapter 22, it says, through 7 through 15, 7 says, If you then have made light of father or mother, I will scatter you among the nations. If you read that passage, it's all about the law, all the commandments. But that's where it started. So as I was studying this on Friday, I sent an email to my two sons and their wives who are parenting our six grandchildren. And I want to tell you something. <laughs> you know how it is, Grandpa and Grandma. Those guys are precious. This is what I wrote. I want to encourage you. I'll be teaching the Ten Commandments on Sunday. And the Fifth Commandment, I believe, is a transitional commandment of God's authority in the lives of our children. When the authority of the mother and father are abdicated, or as our society undermines that authority, the home is destroyed, and therefore the nation will inevitably be destroyed as well. You are doing a tremendous job of exercising your authority in love and grace and wisdom, and your home is blessed, and your children are and will be blessed. And should the Lord tarry, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be blessed. So stay at it. Not easy at times, but worth every stress and angst, there's always a part of fighting a good fight of faith. 
You're doing a wonderful job. We get to see it every time we're with you, Dad. Yeah. I know that our children need to be encouraged. And so much more as we see that day approaching. We need to say to them, we're here. We're living with one of our sons now and three of our grandsons. Our other one lives in Puyallup. To see those little lives running around, nothing like it. But I want to tell you, when I start hearing about some of these things that are going on in homes and places, and I think of my grandchildren, my heart breaks for what's going on in these little lives, little innocent lives that are being, well, my heart breaks for that. And so it should. So we go to the second table. You shall not murder the sanctity of human life. Very simple. You shall not murder. That's the premeditative to take a life, plan to take a life, get it set up to take a life. It's interesting how honor your father and mother. The next one is you shall not murder. We've been living for decades and seeing a holocaust going on in a place that should be the safest thing for a human life, the womb. That's just what's going on. You forsake God. And then, you know, there have been, I was looking, researching this, the cases that have come since the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which made a constitutional right. I can kill my kid. Now, I want to be really sensitive here, so hear me out. Because I know the pain that comes, if that's, if that's was you. I'll tell you, I got a girl pregnant when I was not walking with the Lord. And our first thought, and I was raised in the church. We're going to go down to Mexico and get an abortion. She miscarried. There's pain in this whole area. I get that. We have ministries to that. But God himself said, in talking about them sacrificing their children to Molech, it didn't even enter his mind. So horrible. We need to take that in, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even if you've been a victim of that, you've been a part of that, we have to see it for what it is. Acknowledge is what, I, what I've done and allow the blood of Christ to be applied to these things. And that is true not only of this horrendous, but of every area of our life where we're breaking those commandments, where we're sinning against God. It must come forward as a repentance and acknowledgement. That's what happened. That's what I did for whatever reason. And then apply the blood of the covenant to that sin, to that horrific thing, and say, God, you're merciful. You're my God. And he will forgive and cleanse. And sometimes it's not the healing that we might like at the pace we might like it, but God is our healer. And that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why he gave us the law to understand the gravity of what's gone on, that he might heal us and forgive us. But it'll never happen if we start keep brushing under the carpet. We keep allowing the media to sanitize things that God never sanitizes. 
And there's been decades-long ongoing fight by weary Christians. And thank God, it seems we might be making a little headway in, in this area. You, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. The sanctity of marriage. Adultery is running rampant in the hearts, in the heart of our nation. I mean, sexual relation with someone other than my spouse. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus gave the heart behind it. You look at a woman who lost after in your heart, you already committed, you already committed adultery. It's a heart matter, just like the other things are. They're heart matters of the heart. And because of my relationship with God, listen, because of my relationship with God, his sanctifying presence in my life, I can say I will not commit adultery. And so can you as a believer. And you need to say it. Marriage is honorable, bed undefiled, marriage. The sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of family. You shall not steal. This is the sanctity of, of personal property, God-given. The word means to carry something away. It means to take what doesn't belong to me. You know that. Everyone knows what stealing is. It's to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. And we are seeing this, <laughs> I mean, I taught this Exodus, I think, four years ago. <laughs> I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't even cross my mind that you had these mob thieves pulling up in their cars, planned and organized, walking into Nordstrom and walking out with thousands of dollars of merchandise that doesn't belong to them with no consequence. It's lawlessness. So, this whole area, of, we break this commandment in many ways. You shall not steal. I love this Norman Rockwell painting. Look at it and let me read this to you. Both the butcher and the lovely lady would resent being called thieves. The lovely lady could never rob a bank or steal a car. The butcher would, would be indignant if anyone accused him of stealing. And if a customer gave him a bad check, he would call the police. But neither saw anything wrong with a little deception that would make a few cents for one or save a few cents for, for the other. Isn't that great? It's stealing. So what about what we're not giving that we should? It's interesting when God talked about tithing, Malachi 3, he said, you're robbing me. And God challenged, that's one challenge in the Bible, the only one that I know of. Test me in this and see if I'll not open the winds of heaven. In other words, you trust me, you believe me, stop robbing me, and I'm going to show you how by doing the things that you're called to do, I will bless you. I'll increase where there is nothing. What about not paying taxes to whom taxes are due? What about false claims for disability or social security? What about false time cards or calling in sick when you're not? What about borrowing something and not returning it? What about unfair wages for an employee? What about stealing from workers by demanding longer unfair hours and not paying them? What about gambling to gain without having worked? What about plagiarism, the misappropriation of someone else's work? 
Whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, however we do it, we sin against God as well as against our neighbor. Stealing is a sin against God in at least two ways. First, every theft is a failure to trust in his provision. Second, every theft is also an assault on God's provision for others. Do we have that quote? There it is. Okay. This is a second way that stealing is a sin against God. It robs what he has provided for someone else. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer. But let him work with his hands, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Then we have something to give him who has need. So there are three ways to get wealth. Steal it. Work for it. Or someone gives it to you. That's what Paul says. And we're not to be stealing. Jerry Bridges, there are three basic attitudes we can have toward possession. The first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. This is the attitude of the thief. The second says, what's, my, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. Since we are selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. And third, the third attitude, a godly attitude, what is, what's mine is God's and I'll share it. I'm, what, 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 are we, what number are we on? I'm still on a steal, okay. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this just because I want to. Is that all right? Because <laughs> I think this is so critical right now. Maybe I shouldn't even use that word. <laughs> this is so important to understand something. There are buzz, a few buzzwords like diversity, inclusivity, equity that must be defined biblically and according to a biblical worldview. Lest Satan steal our God-given identity and who he has made us to be, rob us of the beauty of our God-given differences, and guilt us for the blessings of our God-given, God-given rewards because we have worked to make a difference in this world. So this goes from the color of our skin, which displays the beauty of our creator God, to our personal properties with which God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. But we are facing some really things that are so deceitful and so subtle as far as equity. And what I work for needs to be divided up in all those things. Anyway, I'm going on. The positive of the Eighth Commandment is that God, we receive from God so that we might be a blessing to others. That's the bottom line. You should not bear false witness as the sanctity of truth. Our court systems are based that on the Bible, I swear to tell the, whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. In those days when someone perjured, they were taken out. That's how critical truth is, and we know that. Several years ago, I was doing some pre-marriage counseling, and the woman said that she needed her soon-to-be husband to protect her. So I asked her, I said, what do you need protection from? And she said to me, well, that's a good question. I'm going to have to go home and think about that. Came to our next session. She said, four things. I need protection from lies. I need protection from deceit. I need protection from emotional pain. And I need uh, protection from the pressure pressure to change into someone else. But it's interesting. Lies, deception. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Eh, eh, wrong. (laughs) 
No, there's this whole idea. False witnesses, lying about people, gossip, talking about people behind their back is so destructive. And words hurt. Words hurt. The talebearer. So the next time you're talking about someone, would you be talking about them if they were there? Would you be saying what you're saying if someone was standing there who you're talking about? See, this is what this God brings out here. Put away in line, each one speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Paul told the Ephesians. I want to take a moment at the end after we do this, this final one. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. This is the sanctity, what I would call, the sanctity of the human heart. This is the most interesting and convicting of all of them. It's never in any system of justice has a statue that's appeared like this. You shall not covet. Now, they're trying to make these things, they're coming up with some things that are horrendous about what you're thinking, what you say. So how do you enforce it? This thing, you shall not covet. It's strictly a matter of your heart before God. It's the sanctity of your heart. Paul said, I was alive once. The law came to me alive and I died. And I thought I was doing so wonderful until I read the 10th commandment and said, you shall not covet. And I realized, hold on a second, that's my heart. I'm lusting after this. I'm desiring after that. No one knows it, but I know it. Jesus said, beware of covetousness. Have your heart turned toward God. And so the law is holy and just. He closes this chapter. All the people witness the thunderings, lightnings, flashes, verse 18, the trumpet. They said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen all that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods, goals of sil- gods of silver, gold. And he just kind of goes over and, and the whole idea. So then we get it, verse 21 of 21. Now these are the judges you shall set before. So he's going to get into this whole the ceremonial civil laws. Here's what I'd like to do with you. David, if you could come up, uh, you're going to close with a song. But I would like it if you would stand with me before the Lord this morning in closing. God loves me. He's merciful to me. He's God to me. He gave me rest. He gave me life. And because of my relationship with God, and I'm, I'm, I understand there may be someone here this morning who doesn't know the Lord. And so the first thing needed is just to bow our hearts a minute. For anyone here that doesn't know, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I just pray you believers here and watching. If that's you and you don't know the Lord this morning and you would like to know the Lord, would you just slip up your hand just for a moment, just to start. Say, I, I, I want to get right with God today. I understand that my sin has separated, separated me from God. I know there's a problem there. It's my problem. And Jesus came for my sin. If that's you this morning, you, you've heard these things. And that's the first thing we need to take care of. Second, now, as we go through, I just want to, as you're giving me a little background there, in your heart before the Lord, Head bowed, eyes closed, just you and God right now. 
Would you thank him that he loves you? Would you thank him that he's been merciful to you? Would you thank him that he is God to you? Would you thank, thank God that he's given rest to you in Christ from all your labors? Would you thank God that he gave you life through your mom and dad? He brought you into this world. He created you wonderfully and intricately fashioned as only you, you you're uniquely you. Would you thank God for these things? That's the first thing, the relationship we have with God. And now just in the quietness of your heart before God. Jesus said as far as murder, if you're harboring anger, that's, what, that's just like murdering. So I'm going to ask you this morning before the Lord, are you harboring anger towards someone today? And if so, would you apply the blood to that through repentance? You shall not commit adultery. Are you in your heart thinking about someone inappropriately who is not your spouse, who you are not married to? And if that's, would you apply the blood and ask God to forgive you? You shall not steal. If there's any been going on anything that's subtle, <laughs> sort of allowing, maybe it's taking a day off when calling in sick when you're not sick, or you're, you've been sort of rerouting numbers in different areas to make it work better for you rather than being honest. Maybe you've stolen something. If that's you, would you apply the blood? Repent. And ask God to forgive you. You shall not bear false witness. Ooh, this is a tough one for all of us, I think. What are you talking about with other people rather than the person? What have you said? What are you saying? Lord, forgive us. Apply the blood. Ask God to forgive us. Repent. And you shall not covet. Again, can't escape this as sinful people. But we can be forgiven through applying the blood. Asking God to forgive us. Putting it where it needs to be. And so that we can say together, would you join me? I'll say it, you repeat. I will not murder I will not commit adultery. I will not steal. I will not bear false witness. I will not lie. I will not gossip. I will not covet. And John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, here's our hearts before you. We want to worship you in closing in song as you who are the one that provides for our forgiveness, our cleansing, our washing, our renewals. You're the one who can heal us and take us places where we never thought possible in, in spite of what we, we may have done. You are the God. I love that song. It says you never give up. You've never given up on us, Lord. And we want to worship you now in closing. In Jesus' name, let's do it.